Uh, of course, I gave a shout out to my wife, Marion, for being the amazing mother that she is in the first service. And I mentioned, you know, all our kids love her so much. Um, but, uh, you know, especially Cameron, if you know Cameron, uh, which all of you probably do. I think he's the most popular one in our family. Um, and, uh, and I said, uh, I said, Cam, what do you want to get mom for Mother's Day? And he said, hugs. I mean, <laughs> and, and he did, he did. He had hugs and kisses stored up. I think he was, um, if it's possible to store those up, he was doing that. Well, we're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Peter, so I encourage you to, uh, to grab your Bible. And we're in chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 18. I've given the sermon the title, Victory Through Suffering. Victory Through Suffering. Uh, but before we read that, I want to talk about the Bible and, and talk about the clarity of the Bible. Uh, or what sometimes theologians call the perspicuity of the Bible. What that means is that the Bible, the message of the Bible, the main message of the Bible is not difficult to understand. It's not rocket surgery. Okay? A child can understand the main message of the Bible. How many kids do we have out there this morning? You all know the message of the Bible, right? How many of you know John 3.16? Anybody? All right. How about we say it together? This is for the kids, me and the kids. All right, ready? Are you with me? I got to hear you loudly though, right? Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well done. That verse summarizes in one verse, one sentence, the, the major thrust of the Bible. It's not difficult. There are other verses I think you can do this with. Uh, Titus 3.5, it says that God saved us not because of works of righteousness. God saved us not because of our own works, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be that sacrifice that took the wrath of God for us. The main message of the Bible is not hard to understand but can you explain it can you give a defense to those who ask you can you explain the message of what we call the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ well in this church we've we've uh, we've done some training before and we've looked at a method of doing this I think it's really helpful it's called the three circles approach so let's watch this short video it explains how to share the gospel. So we live in this world and it's characterized by brokenness. We don't have to look very hard to see. There are things like disease, disasters, wars. There's a lot of pain in this world, but this is not God's original design. God has a perfect design. 
And the way that we have gotten ourselves into brokenness is through something that the Bible calls sin. Sin is turning away from God's design and pursuing our own way. And that leads us to brokenness. Brokenness eventually leads us to death. And this death will separate us from God forever. But God doesn't want us to stay in brokenness. So he's made a way out. And that way is Jesus. Jesus comes and he enters into our brokenness. And the death that we deserve for pursuing brokenness, Jesus takes our place and dies on a cross. And his body is broken for us. And three days after he dies, he rose from the dead and he made a way out of brokenness. And people try many things to get out of brokenness. Things like religion, things like success or relationships, education or drugs and alcohol. But none of these things can get us out of brokenness. The only way out is Jesus. And if we turn from our sin and believe that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, we can leave brokenness and grow in a relationship with God and pursue his design. And more than that, we can go. We can be sent just like Jesus back into brokenness to help others come through him to pursue God's design. Now, there's two types of people in the world. There are people that are pursuing God's design, and there's people that are still in brokenness. We have to ask ourselves, where are we? So where do you think you are? It's not very difficult, is it? it it's, it's, the message is clear. It's plain. But it doesn't mean that they, the Bible has no difficult passages. They are in the Bible. And we've, we've seen some of these in our studies over the over the past few years as we went through the book of Hebrews. Remember there were some warning passages that presented some interpretive challenges. Or we looked at 1 John and at the end of 1 John it mentions uh, there's a sin that leads to death and there's a sin that doesn't lead to death and there's debate on what these things uh, mean. What is, precisely does John mean when he says that? Or what does Paul who is he referring to when he talks about a man of lawlessness will be revealed? And why does, he, why does he say that women must cover their heads because of the angels? I remember once looking up that interpretation and, and there were 40 different proposed interpretations of because of the angels. Some texts are difficult, but the message of the Bible is clear. And there are some difficulties in this text. I'll, I'll mention briefly, uh, as, we, as we read through it, you'll see that it mentions the spirits in prison that Jesus proclaims something to. Who are these spirits in prison? And how is it that baptism saves us? So there are some interpretive challenges in this text, but the overall message is clear. And as I read through, I want you to focus on three things that were prominent in the apostolic gospel when the apostles preached what did they preach you know what they preached the death resurrection and ascension of Christ and that's really the three points of the sermon this morning Jesus suffered and died he was raised again and he ascended to heaven so it's very easy to follow um, so let me read the text you you as I read through you listen for those three components So 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Martin Luther said of this text, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So this is the text I have this morning. Even Martin Luther uh, was uncertain. Let me give you a summary before we get into the details here of what I think Peter is saying, something like this. Because Christ suffered and was later glorified, suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure. Thus, believers, we do do not need to fear suffering since we share the same destiny as our Lord. His suffering ultimately led to his victory over his enemies and it provides reconciliation for believers. And so just like Noah, Believers who are a persecuted minority can trust that God will faithfully deliver them through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Basically what he's saying, it's worth it. That there is victory through suffering. So let me pray for us. Father, we, in our, in our weakness, and perhaps in, in our sinfulness, we want victory without suffering. But Lord, help us to reflect on our Lord who in your goodness, in your perfect plan had a different road for him and he willingly came and laid down his life, was willing to suffer on our behalf. And so Father, in our, in our suffering, in our trials, Help us to look to Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him was willing to endure the cross. So Lord, teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first, Jesus' suffering and death is the means of our reconciliation. So point number one, Jesus' suffering and death is the means of our reconciliation. Because Jesus suffered, we can be reconciled to God. That's what Peter says in verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered. Notice the also there, by the way. If you look to verse 17, what does it say? It says, we suffer. When we suffer, it should be for doing what is right. But Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so what Peter is saying first is that Christ suffered, the son of God, the sinless son of God suffered. How did he suffer? Well, you just look at his life. Even before, as he's being born, there's no room for him in the inn. 
His parents were, were, were forced to, to flee Egypt for their lives. And they returned. And, and then as he started his ministry, he was tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He even says he has no place to lay his head. And constantly plots were made to kill him. In his journey to the cross, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was beaten, flogged, mopped, tortured, deserted, and crucified. But of course, spiritually, he suffered. As he bore the sins of the world, and he cried out, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? As he experienced the wrath of God that we deserved. He suffered unjustly. Peter tells us earlier in in chapter 2 that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so he says he he was put to death. In the weakness of his human nature, he died. He was buried And he was put into a tomb for three days. He says not only did he suffer, but he suffered once. And so what Peter is focusing in on here is Jesus's, not his life so much, but specifically his death. He suffered once. Paul says something similar in Romans 6.10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The author of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, unlike the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were done day after day and week after week and year after year, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, suffered once. And then he says that he suffered once for us. Now we have, to, we have to make sure we get this right. What, do you, what does he mean for us? Because I think this could easily be misunderstood. Uh, you know, I think of when my kids used to play soccer and, you know, uh, they maybe they'd score a goal and they say, you know, that one was for you, mom. That, that goal was for you. That's not what Pete, that's not the kind of for you, for us that Peter is talking about. He's talking about in your place in your stead, on behalf of you. This is on our behalf Christ suffered. In other words, we deserved it. He took the penalty. We find this throughout scripture, even going all the way back to Isaiah 53 at least, where this, uh, this prophecy about the suffering servant, Jesus, we know. But he says, surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died in our place. That old hymn, that old hymn in our place condemned he stood. 1 Corinthians 15.13, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was cursed in our place. 
And so uh, theologians will sometimes call this, uh, you know, theologians like fancy terms and words, but this is an important one. It's known as the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. Take that one home and, and use it on your friends, right? Um, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, the penalty. Christ takes the penalty for us. Substitution. He took our place. We deserve to be there, and instead, he is there. He, and then he becomes the atonement, the one who takes our place as the sacrifice. This is the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? We deserve the penalty. Christ takes it on our behalf. God is holy. He must punish sin. You think, well, God can do whatever he wants. No. Uh, God is holy. He must punish sin. And so Christ is punished in our place. And this, this really has been a treasured belief in the church throughout its history. I was just looking at um, the, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon. I love reading his sermons and, and uh, I was looking at a sermon last night and here's what he said regarding this doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Christ takes our place. He says this, brethren, I cannot preach anything else for I know nothing else. No dogmas or, or teachings or new dogmas or teachings may or may not be true, but the truth of this doctrine, I am sure. Unfortunately, in our day, there has been, there's been some attack against the idea that Christ takes our place, believe it or not. One guy by the name of Steve Chalk wrote a book entitled The Lost Message of Jesus. You know, I'm usually a little curious when somebody claims to have found the lost message. I don't think we lost it, <laughs> you know. Which message are you talking about? I think it's right there in plain, you know, sight. But he wrote this book, The Lost Message of Jesus, and he called the idea of Jesus taking our place as a substitute and bearing the wrath of God, he called that divine or cosmic child abuse. No, it's not cosmic child abuse. Christ willingly comes as our representative and takes the penalty that was due to us. As Peter says, it's the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ, the righteous, perfect one, stands in our place. And so we see in Isaiah 53 again, verse 11, beautiful uh, description of what, this, what took place. He says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, us who believe in him. And he shall bear their iniquities. He bears our sin. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, the sinless one, takes on our sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Because on our own, we have no perfect righteousness. And so we receive that from Christ. He takes our sin 
we receive his righteousness. And then he says that Christ suffered once for us to reconcile us to God. Or as he says in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. You see, the implication is that we need to be brought to God, that we're separated from God, that we are alienated from God, and we need to be reconciled. You know, Peter writes of, of, uh, of regarding his, his readers, how they were once far from God, they were once those who disobeyed. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He says in chapter four, no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. In a similar way, before we have faith in Christ, we're alienated from God. We need to be reconciled. And I, and I think sometimes we, we think of God merely as a friend or a grandfather. But you see, he's also the creator and the king. And as someone who has committed cosmic treason against the king, we need a mediator. I read a story about a, a little boy, this is years ago, a little boy in London who wanted, to visit, who, he wanted to visit the king. And the gates were closed of the palace. He could not get in. And the guard told him that there was no way he's getting in. And then suddenly a well-dressed man came along and asked the boy what the problem was. And the boy said, I want to see the king. The gentleman said, well, you just come with me. And he took the boy's hand and he led him to the king. And as he passed the guard, the guard stood up and he presented arms as they passed by, you see the little boy had taken hold of the hand of the Prince of Wales, the king's own son, and this gave him access. We need to be reconciled. We have offended the king. We're not just a little innocent boy. We have offended the king. We need a mediator who can stand in our place and to bring us to God. One, uh, one author I read put it this way, he said, Jesus died in order that, so to speak, he might reach across the gulf between God and humanity and taking our hand, lead us across the territory of the enemy into the presence of the Father who called us. You see, Jesus' suffering and death is the means of our being reconciled to God. That's what Peter says. But secondly, we see that Jesus' resurrection is the means of our vindication. Jesus' resurrection is the means of our vindication. You know, verses 19 to 21, actually even at the end of verse 18, the resurrection is the focus. Uh, verse 18, at the end of the, that verse, it says that he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He was made alive in the spirit. You know, some translations render it, he was made alive by the spirit, and I think that's right. It was the spirit of God that raised up Jesus after three days. Although he was put to death in the flesh, the spirit raised him up. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8.11, isn't it? He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead See, the spirit raised Jesus from the dead. If that spirit dwells in you, he who raised 
Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus will raise you. And so notice that the resurrection is, it really brackets this passage. At the end of verse 18, he was made alive by the spirit. Verse 21, he mentions it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection is what validates or vindicates Christ's suffering and what gives us hope. Now, just, to make clear, make, just want to make sure that we're all on the same page on this understanding of vindication. I looked it up in the dictionary. It means proof that someone is right, reasonable, or justified. Have you ever been vindicated? Have you ever shared something with somebody and they're like, no way, you're kidding. That's impossible. I don't believe that. You're making stuff up, right? And we're like, no, I'm, I'm really serious. And then no, nobody believes you. But then all of a sudden you, you show some proof. Aha, you've been vindicated. You know what that feeling is? Nobody believes you, then all of a sudden you offer proof. Vindication. How do we know Christ's claims are true. How do we know he is who he says he is? The answer is the resurrection, vindicated. And how do we know that our suffering is worth it? How do we know that we are justified? The answer, his resurrection, vindicated. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. There it is. The Spirit raised him again. He was vindicated. And then he was seen by angels, proclaimed, on, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. One author I read put it this way. He said, the vindication of Christ lays the basis for the vindication of the believer. And Christ's vindication is total. He goes on to say vindication is real. And Christ's vindication belongs precisely to those who suffer. We are vindicated because of him. You know, when I, when I go on vacation, I always like to bring a John Grisham novel with me. Especially if I'm at the beach and I'm relaxing and I have time to read. Anybody like to read John Grisham novels? I, I love, I've read them all, I think. Uh, the, these, are, these are fictional novels about lawyers and courtrooms and judges and lawsuits. But one of his books, and only one as far as I know, was a nonfiction book called The Innocent Man, Murder and Injustice in a Small Town, 2006. It's a story of how Ron Williamson, a former minor league baseball player from Ada, Oklahoma, was wrongfully accused and convicted in 1988 of raping and murdering Deborah Sue Carter. He served 11 years in prison, not just in prison, but 11 years on death row until by DNA evidence and other material introduced by the Innocence Project, 11 years later, 1999, he was vindicated. He maintained his innocence the whole time. Nobody believed him, at least not anybody who could help him. 
But finally the evidence was, was given, released, not guilty, vindicated. You see, we may suffer, we may be mistreated, we may be accused of believing certain things and what Peter is saying is that Christ underwent the same things and worse but because of his resurrection he is vindicated and all who trust in him are vindicated as well. And so in this text, let's look at it again the verse, uh, at the end of verse 18, he says, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice he was made alive by the Spirit, the beginning at the end through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ was resurrected. And then it says this, this difficult passage here, this is where, they, where it gets a little sticky and where Martin Luther wasn't sure what Peter was talking about. Um, but it says that uh, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, who are these spirits in prison? Uh, some people take it as uh, these were the people who were alive during the days of Noah and then who died and their spirits were put in prison or that they were Old Testament saints. I don't think it's referring to either one of those. I don't think it's referring to people. Uh, I think it's referring to evil spirits or demons that Christ is proclaiming his victory after his resurrection, right? We just talked about it was by the Spirit he was raised from the dead. And so in light of the resurrection, he proclaims a message, a proclamation of victory over these evil spirits. And, and there's a number of reasons for, the, for this interpretation. For example, you know, when you, when you look at the word spirits, you might think, well, yeah, it's somebody who died, their spirit goes in prison. But every time in the New Testament, except one time, Spirits refers to angels or demons, not people. Furthermore, uh, the word prison is never used to refer to a person, a human being who has died and gone to a prison. You have people in prison, like Paul was in prison, real prison, physical prison, but never when they died are people said to have gone to prison. Whereas we know like in Revelation 20, Satan, it says that he will be bound a thousand years and he will be released uh, from his prison. So we know that evil spirits are in prison. And in 2 Peter 2.4, it says that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. This is what I think is going on in this text. That Jesus, after the resurrection, before he ascends or during his ascent to, to heaven is proclaiming a message of victory and judgment over these evil spirits who've been put in chains. Now, there's another difficulty in this text. He talks about the flood and he talks about baptism. And uh, I think what he's saying is something like this, that just as God rescued Noah 
and his family through the waters of the flood, so also we are rescued from God's wrath through Christ's resurrection pictured in baptism. Now, one of the things that Peter says, he does say that baptism saves us. So does that mean that the act of baptism saves? And although there are Christian denominations and traditions that believe in what's called baptismal regeneration, that is, the very fact that somebody's baptized, it does a work, it, it, it regenerates the heart, I, I don't think that's what Peter means here, and it's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Uh, what does he mean that, that baptism saves us? Well, maybe it's something akin to saying uh, something like faith saves you. you. You have to believe to be saved, and if you believe, you're, you, can, you can receive salvation, correct? But when you think about it, does, is it faith that saves you? Are you saved because you believe? Well, you're saved by faith, but not so much because you believe. You're saved by grace. God saves faith. Your faith doesn't do it, right? God does it through the means of faith. And I think something similar with, is going on here with baptism. It's the resurrection of Christ that ultimately is our salvation. But God, it's pictured here in our death and our being raised to newness of life. And so he could say in that sense, it's baptism that saves us. It's because we are in Christ. He talks about having a clear conscience, right? You have to believe. It has to be a heartfelt response. But in baptism then is that beautiful picture of dying and being raised with Christ. You know, baptism is, is not only a sign of our newness of life, it's a sign of judgment. God, God judges the earth and Yet through that, Noah and his family are saved. And God put his wrath on his son. And by faith, we die to sin, but we are also raised to newness of life. Because of the resurrection, God saves us. So, because of Christ's suffering, we are reconciled we can be reconciled to God. And th it's through the resurrection that we have vindication because we now have proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And then finally, number three, Jesus' ascension is the means of our glorification. Jesus' ascension is the means of our glorification. Verse 22 He's talking about Jesus, he says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus has gone into heaven. Do you know there are other people who are resurrected from the dead? For example, Lazarus. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. But he died again. Jesus was resurrected and he went to heaven where he reigns with God. God the Father. And so he says that he is at the right hand of God, meaning he is the one ruling and reigning. Four times in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, who has made purifications for our sins through the single sacrifice of himself, what did he do? 
he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is completed. And so he has subjected angels, authorities, and powers. Or as Paul says in Colossians 2.15, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I like the way that Luther put it in his famous hymn, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. Christ rules and reigns. And even though the Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion, he's a lion on a leash, his defeat, his doom is certain. And ultimately, he will be defeated, and the last enemy to be defeated will be death. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, what Peter is saying is that our future is tied to Christ's, because Through our faith in him, we are united to him and all the blessings that he has received, as Paul says in in the book of Ephesians, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Last year, a man by the name of Chris Gursky from Florida, he decided to try hang gliding in the Swiss Alps. Look, if you're going to go hang gliding, you might as well go big or go home, right? You go to the Swiss Alps. That's, I mean, what could be more beautiful than that? There's only one problem. That was a large problem because the the pilot, you see, they're in tandem together in, in one hang glider. The pilot, the instructor, failed to strap him in. The pilot was strapped in, but Chris was not strapped in. So as they take off, he realizes this. The pilot realizes this, but the pilot's flying this thing. And so Chris has to hold on for his life as they start to gain altitude. At one point, they are 4,000 feet in the air. He had to hold on for several minutes. He he, uh, he, uh, pulled a a tendon in his bicep. He, He ripped it. Uh, on, upon landing at 45 miles an hour, you know, he's, he's dangling. He's not, he's supposed to be horizontal. He, he, at 45 miles an hour, he lets go. He breaks his wrist. He held on for his life for two minutes and 14 seconds. And most, most of us could not do that. 14 seconds. We would be, you know, at least we wouldn't be too high up. <laughs> Maybe there's a chance. Um, well, watch this video. See that showing he's not clipped in. Oops. Houston, we have a problem. Okay, that's about 14 seconds. Imagine most of us would be gone right there, probably not survive. They try to make an emergency landing here. That doesn't work, so they have to turn and go down to that valley below. That's where they get 4,000 feet. Um, So he has to continue to hold on. 
slow-mo. You can see he's going 45 miles an hour. He drops, breaks his wrist. And I think that was the first day of his vacation too. What's the point of that video? Well, our lives, our futures are tied to another. Somebody I promise you is more faithful and reliable than that Swiss instructor. <laughs> Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, what he's saying is because of Jesus was resurrected and ascended to his throne in heaven, we too can have confidence that we will be overcomers and conquerors through him. You, you see, difficult passages in the Bible don't draw people away from the faith but difficult trials in life do. In my experience, people tend to, to change their understanding of the Bible based on personal lifestyle preferences and trials they experience. So brothers and sisters, this morning I say to you, have you let suffering pull you away from the faith, pull you away from your relationship with God? Are you drifting spiritually because of challenges to your faith? Peter reminds us this morning that pain and suffering are not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure. Jesus himself suffered. God has a purpose. He had a purpose for Jesus' suffering. He has a purpose for our suffering. And in our suffering, Jesus still reigns and rules. We have not become unstrapped or untethered to his providential grace and care. You see, through faith, we are joined together with him. And as he says, nothing will snatch you from my hand. You see, because he suffered we are reconciled. The wrath of God against us is satisfied and we now have access to the king and more than that, we have become his children. Because he was vindicated by the resurrection, we are vindicated before the judge of the universe, not guilty. And someday we will be vindicated before the world. And because he was glorified and exalted by his father, so too we will be glorified. Why? Because our life is hidden in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' word to us is this, from John 16, take heart, I have overcome the world. And what he's saying this morning is it's worth it. There is victory through suffering because of what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, we, we confess, Lord, that our faith is often weak.
We thank you, Lord, that you can use faith as small as a mustard seed to accomplish great purposes. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us this day to trust and to believe in your word. That no matter where we are, no matter what kind of suffering we might be experiencing, that Christ also suffered 